This is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I'm your host, Davy Crockett. Thanks. Thanks for coming. This is episode 32. This is part two of a story about the greatest ultra runner of the first half of the 20th century, Johnny Solo, and I will tell the story of the 1929 race across America, the Bunyan Derby. Johnny Solo was the greatest American ultra runner of the first half of the 1900s. This is part two of the story of his amazing life. If you haven't already, go listen to episode 31, which highlights Solo's rise to running fame when he placed second in the 1928 race across America in the Bunyan Derby. In this concluding episode, Solo's fame grows even more when he ran in the 1929 Bunyan Derby with perhaps one of the most exciting finishers in ultra running history. But sadly, his amazing running career soon was cut short by tragedy. You may want to find a tissue for the end of this story. Why? <laughs> Not yet. This article celebrates the amazing accomplishments and impactful life of Johnny Solo. Once a huge hero, he has now been forgotten, even by his hometown of Passaic, New Jersey, and needs to be remembered again. By February 1929, Charles C. Pyle was at it again, promoting an upcoming 1929 International Continental Foot Race, or Bunyan Derby, that this time would go from New York to Los Angeles with a more southern route. In March, Sal announced locally his intention to get an unpaid leave from the Passaic, New Jersey Police Fork to run in the 1929 Bunyan Derby. An editorial in his hometown newspaper thought the idea was terrible. For a long time after his return, he was not altogether a well man. Salo shouldn't think of going into another such nerve-wracking, body-breaking test of endurance. For his own sake and his family's, he should be dissuaded from making this next race. His sturdy physique, weakened by the last effort, should be shattered in the next. By late March 1929, 81 runners from 14 countries had gathered at Pyle's training camp on Long Island, preparing for race day. They all sought to win the $25,000 first prize, or at least finish in the top 15 to get a piece of the total $60,000 pot. About 30 of the 1928 Bunyan Derby runners returned to run again. The 1929 Bunyan Derby began on March 31, 1929. An estimated 50,000 people jammed Columbus Circle in New York City for the send-off. The runners first ran 2.5 miles to board an electric ferry to cross the Hudson River over to New Jersey. Solo unfortunately became ill early because of the heat, so he took it easy on that first day. But all along the way, he was the center of attention among the estimated 500,000 fans. Many would ask, where is Salo? Bill Wickland and Salo's wife, Amelia, who was also part of his crew, drived along, helped him the best they could to overcome his stomach trouble. On the second day, they ran towards Trenton, New Jersey, and Salo was in third place. He declared that real competition would not develop for two weeks, and in the meantime, he would be content to remain close to the leaders. Running out of Trenton, New Jersey on day three, 
Sato narrowly escaped meeting disaster when an automobile brushed him. Johnny leaped to the sidewalk and could not hold his footing and went sprawling except for a few scratches. However, he was uninjured. In Delaware, Sato won the first stage on day four, tied with Peter Gavuzzi of England. Gavuzzi was a world-class ultra runner who was leading the 1928 Bunyan Derby late but had to pull out due to badly infected teeth. Many of the runners were shivering in a drizzle as they lined up for the roll call and start of the next day's 40-mile run to Baltimore, Maryland. Some were covered in raincoats, solo tied for second that day. Solo took the overall lead at Frederick, Maryland. The following day, Solo and Gardner, in overall second, dueled for 36 miles in scorching sun. Gardner hopped into the lead at the start and was ahead a mile and a half before Solo started to chase him. He caught him after two hours and they ran neck and neck. Solo pushed into the lead, but after drinking some milk, his stomach rebelled, allowing Gardner to take the day's 52-mile victory. Four runners dropped out on that tough day. Solo lost his overall lead as they hit the hills in the Cumberland Mountains. Fearing shin splints, he walked up most of the hills. He said he wasn't worried about losing the lead. There will be plenty of opportunities in this race. It is too early to think about getting a lead and holding it. The runners faced one of the toughest stages of the entire race when they had to run 63 miles up and over the Allegheny Mountain Range to Uniontown, Pennsylvania. Solo still suffered from stomach issues. He was forced to stop a dozen or more times in 33 miles and could not hold down any food. Only 34 of the 81 starters remained in the race. After wallowing through the mud for nearly 11 hours without anything to eat, Solo finished 5th on the 12th day at Wheeling, West Virginia. Overall, after 500 miles, he was overtaken by Gavuzzi and had slipped into 3rd place. Ohio was rough. Unpleasant weather and poor receptions for the patient plotters at most of the stops spread a feeling of depression over the Bunyaneers. Pavement pounders shivered in unseasonable cold as they shuffled into Springfield. At Springfield, Ohio, Solo's discouraging illness returned. He still didn't panic and finished in sixth that day in cold weather and rain. One runner quit because he, quote, didn't feel like running anymore. Solo returned to his old form as he won the 17th stage in Richmond, Indiana, covering 63 miles in an impressive 847, despite a stiff headwind along the bleak, unpopulated, lonely road. Crowds lined the streets of Richmond as he finished his impressive run that day. If anyone has any doubts about the feat being one of the greatest accomplishments of the 1929 athletic season in any branch of sports, let him come out here and tell it to the residents of this Hoosier State community. Solo made it three wins in a row into Indianapolis, covering 35.3 miles in 4 hours and 27 minutes. Solo tore the road as if he were trying to reach Los Angeles before the sun dipped in the west. He was going so fast that he sped past the timer's table at the finish. Solo took over second place overall, running into Effingham, Illinois, winning a 52.4 mile stage in 7 hours and 11 minutes. 
Solo had a lonely time in the run. Most of the day, a cold rain fell as lightning cracked and thunder growled. Solo chalked up another stage win running 59.8 miles in 8 hours and 12 minutes into Collinsville, Illinois. He said, A dog ran after me near a farm. I had to run. There were only 28 runners left in the race out of the 81 starters. So far they had covered 1,036 miles. Ed Fetting, a former professional basketball player who wrote for the St. Louis newspaper, composed a column about Solo. The other morning, as I stood at the foot of a bridge that crosses the Mississippi River in Missouri, I saw a little sun-baked figure trotting along the highway. He seemed as a phantom runner, coming out of some unknown world. Pressing on, he passed the throngs with eyes glued to the trail before him. It was Johnny Solo. Solo praised one of his trainers, his wife, Amelia. She's the only woman trainer in the race. And man, she's a good one. The best I ever saw. And just learning, too. Amelia, also an athlete when she was younger, was credited for bringing Solo out of his stomach illness when it seemed certain he would have to quit. One day in Missouri, the three overall leaders ran together. Solo, Gardner, and Gabuzi narrowly escaped injury on the road when a motorcycle swerved into them. Gabuzi wrenched his back, getting out of the way, and Solo made a grab for the driver and, failing to catch him, tossed a stone at him. It was low and on the outside, and the wild driver took the base. On another day, Solo was nearly four hours behind first place Gabuzi overall. Solo mentioned that he had seen a snake wiggle across the road in front of him and was so frightened he couldn't breathe easy for ten minutes. I'm scared of snakes, and I'm going to buy a gun and ammunition. The next day, a terrible wind and hail kept the snakes away, and Sala won the stage to Joplin, Missouri, because it was said, Gabuzi's long beard caught the wind and held him back. In Oklahoma, Solo narrowly escaped serious injury along the rough roads. A Texas car made him jump to the center of the road as it sped past him. Another car going in the opposite direction passed at the same time and almost struck him. Solo trimmed Gabuzi's lead to less than two hours by winning a 60-mile stage. In Texas, his wife Amelia said, Johnny Solo eats too much. He eats all day and all night. How can he run? He argued back, Well, I am hungry, and I'm going to eat. Sometimes at midnight I get hungry and I have to get out of bed and eat. The stars at night are big and bright Deep in the heart of Texas on a 39.4-mile stage to Anson, Texas, Solo sped over the rough Texas roads beneath a broiling sun at high speed, although the sun slowed all the boys down. He won the stage in 5 hours and 8 minutes, trimming 19 minutes off the lead. The next day, Solo climbed within less than an hour of the lead to Sweetwater, Texas. He was in good shape when he checked in and trotted around the hall after the time was clocked him. Wickland, Solo's trainer, later said, People don't realize the tremendous stamina a runner must possess to finish a race like the Bunyan Derby. 
In Texas, the rain was like ice water, and the hail came down so hard the runners were bruised. When it wasn't raining, the sun was beating down on the athletes. Sometimes they were so badly sunburned they couldn't lie down in comfort at night. They had to get up and run the next day just the same. But still about 1,400 miles to go, race predictors felt the winner would be either Gabuzi or Solo. Gabuzi runs easier than Solo. He has an easy stride and is unbeatable over 45 miles. He has a cheerful word when he checks in and immediately grabs his pipe for an evening smoke. Solo, on the other hand, looks strained when he pounds the highway. He looks neither to the right or left, and a wave of the hand is ignored by him. When checking in, however, he generally has a wide smile and stops to talk for a few minutes. It is hard to make a selection between Gabuzi and Solo. If the outcome depended upon the last two or three days, Gabuzi would win. He is fast as groomed lightning and can set a terrific speed for long distances over two or three days. After trailing Gabuzi overall for 1,200 miles, Salo finally took the lead by four minutes after a 40-mile stage to Midland, Texas. For the next few days, they kept each other in sight. These boys are going to have a great battle for the remainder of the trip. Every day, thousands struggle for a view of them along the roads. Getting closer to the Mexican border, Salo, attired in a Mexican hat, did a war dance every 700 yards or so. When he came to a brook, he suggested going for a swim. The idea was voted down, however, by the other runners. Passaic, New Jersey's newspaper finally admitted its editorial was wrong a couple months earlier when it opposed Salo's decision to run the race again. We thought it would be too much for him, but we were wrong, and so we are glad to admit the fact. May he show his heels to the rest of them all the way to the coast. So here's to Johnny Solo. May he come through first. In Arizona, the overall lead ping-ponged back and forth between Solo and Gavuzi each day. All were curious who would come out on top during a 51-mile grind to Mesa, Arizona. Solo was in great condition today, and his running over the arid wastelands was a treat to behold. He declared at the finish that he never felt better during the race, expressed regret that the lap wasn't longer. Salo's lead grew to more than an hour. He stretched it even further on the next 54.2-mile stage to Buckeye, Arizona, future home of the Across the Years race. Gavuzi commented afterwards, He is either not human or superhuman. He is so far ahead I can't see him. But Gavuzi proclaimed that he would regain the lead within two days. Gavuzi backed up his bravado the next day by gaining another 30 minutes on Solo, who was bothered by the heat. Over a blazing sun that beat down on the desolate desert roads prevented Gavuzi from assuming the lead. Both Gavuzi and Solo are dog-tired. As Gavuzi predicted, he took the lead the next day on a 44-mile stage to the California border. With only six days left, it didn't look good for Solo. He seemed to be heading for another second-place finish. On the next day into California, Gavuzi refused to let Solo get away from him, and they compromised on a tie as they ran together over desert roads beneath the blistering sun. 
The agreement clearly favored Gavuzi as the finish was getting closer. There was no agreement on the next day, a 58-mile stage to Jacumba, California. Solo won the most grueling grind of the race entirely uphill beneath the hottest sun of the year. He cut 36 minutes off Gavuzi's lead. That Johnny meant business was easy to see at the start of the morning. He was quiet and reserved, his attitude generally when he intended to run hard. He took the long steep hills at a fast gait while Gavuzi walked up most of the grades. Things got really interesting setting up a wild finish as Salo pulled within 10 minutes the next day to San Juan Capistrano, California. The stage was about 70 miles. Both men fought savagely as they ran along the beautiful Pacific Coast Highway. Gavuzi, his face lined with exhaustion, dragged his weary frame into the control point and witnessed the overall timer reduce his margin. What a battle they put up! after 76 days of running. June 16, 1929 was the last day of the race to Los Angeles. The race started at 7.40 p.m. at Huntington Park and went for a four-mile run to Wrigley Park, the home of a minor league baseball team, the Los Angeles Angels. There, they would run laps for 26.2 miles in front of a crowd to finish the race. Salo started at a terrific pace and chopped four minutes off Gavuzi's ten-minute lead by the time he reached Wrigley Field. To finish things off, they needed to run 131 laps. Salo's running was beautiful to behold. He clicked off 12 miles an hour in spurts. His lip set in determination, his face drawn with weariness and pain, his powerful bronze legs pounding, pounding, pounding as he drew away. He caught up to Gavuzi's overall lead by mile 12 and then went four minutes ahead by the half marathon mark. Solo tired and Gavuzi put on a push, but only gained back a couple minutes. Gavuzi sprinted occasionally, but his morale was broken. He ran with his head down, eyes to the ground. His fingers clenched nervously as he fought valiantly to catch Solo. But it was the flying cops night and he gave Los Angeles sports fans the most marvelous exhibition of powerful running it has been their pleasure to behold. Sala was the winner of the final stage and was the winner overall by just 2 minutes 47 seconds over Gavuzi. Sala's hometown reporter on the scene said, Sala ran a great race that last day. He was a 10-to-1 shot to lose, but he showed the West Coast fans that he is the world's greatest runner and 10,000 cheered wildly, standing on their feet throughout the last 10 miles of the grind. It was a great finish to a 3,600-mile race. Imagine, less than three minutes decided the race. The loss was heartbreaking to Gavuzi. Many years later, when both Pyle and Sala were dead, he would claim that the starter on the last day said they weren't racing the first four miles to Wrigley Park, that they would start the marathon together at the park. Clearly other runners didn't have that understanding. Gavuzi said that he was held up by traffic and by a very long freight train on the way. But Salo and the others went all out and Gavuzi was only four minutes behind them when arriving at the park. The story just doesn't add up. He still had the overall lead on the track. Gavuzi never issued a formal protest at the time. He claimed that Newton talked him out of it. 
Nothing in the 1929 newspapers mentioned this controversy. Gavuzzi also claimed, those many years later, that Pyle had told him to keep the race close if he wanted to collect the winnings. That seemed believable to get thousands to come and pay to watch the last day. Bunyan Derby expert Charles B. Kastner carefully examined all the evidence in his book, The 1929 Bunyan Derby, and concluded that Gavuzzi's claims didn't hold up. Others have believed Gavuzzi's claims and conclude that Pyle wanted an American hero to win and tried to rig the race in Solo's favor at the end. Would the runners get their winnings? A day after the race, Pyle met with Solo in Pyle's hotel room where he offered Solo $12,500 cash right then to meet his winner award. Solo refused to take half a loaf, would wait for the entire amount, but later would regret that decision. Pyle's troubles started to grow. Complaints of non-payment were filed against him by several employees. Solo wanted to accept some endorsement offers and vaudeville performing offers, but for some reason Pyle nixed each one of these, trying to hold out for more money. Solo said, I couldn't accept any of these because Pyle stepped in. His contract with me tied me up so that I wouldn't be able to earn a dollar without his consent and the right share of the profits. By July 1929, Pyle claimed that he was penniless and that he had lost $100,000 on the race. At a hearing, he was given a tongue lashing. These cases are not only serious ones, but they are disgraceful. It would appear that aside from any legal obligations, there are moral obligations involved here. Pyle still claimed he would come up with the money owed. On the evening of July 13, 1929, Solo and several other pile runners started competing in a six-day or 144-hour relay race held at the American Legion Ascot Speedway. The race was staged by famed athlete Jim Thorpe. Solo teamed up with pile runner Sam Richmond of New York. Eight other teams competed. Solo and Richmond won with 749 miles, which broke a record of 733 miles set by two French runners 25 years earlier at New Orleans, Louisiana. Wickland, Solo's trainer, said, Johnny had to run better than he ever did before to break the record. His partner, Sam Richmond, was badly handicapped with an infected heel. The brunt of the running fell on Johnny, and he clearly showed he is the greatest endurance runner in the world by the way he came through. Near the end of August, Pyle surrendered to the police as a defendant in two labor lawsuits. He reported that he was dead broke. Pyle was able to arrange for about $4,000 to be given to Solo and a promissory note for the remaining money. Without his full winnings, Solo finally returned home to New Jersey in early September. He organized a 15-mile race with his pile runner pals, Andy Payne, Peter Gavuzzi, and Arthur Newton, to be held at the Passaic High School track for $3,500 prize money. 3,000 fans came out to cheer their local hero. In the end, Newton won in 1 hour 32 minutes, with Gavuzzi a half mile behind and Solo another quarter mile behind. It was said that Solo appeared overweight and listless, but Solo's finish was strong, and he received a great ovation from the crowd despite the crushing defeat. 
On October 2, 1929, Sala was officially welcomed home to Passaic at a reception held at the Capitol Theater. He was presented with a scroll and a silver trophy of a runner mounted on a bronze stand. Salo said, pointing to the scroll, I wouldn't part with this for a million dollars. I want to thank everyone for the support given me during the race. Gavuzi and Newton were also present, introduced, and received hearty applause. A few days later, Salo resumed his job with the police force. Salo used his running skills to again become a local hero <laughs> when a mad dog attacked six people near a miniature golf course. The police were called in. Officer Salo joined in the chase and finally cornered the dog in the backyard. Officer Krabach arrived with the net, and the dog was put into the patrol wagon and taken to headquarters. On another day, an insane naked man jumped from his third-story window and fled down the street. Salo chased after the naked man for a half mile in a bizarre race. Pedestrians were thrown into a turmoil. The man finally slowed due to his injuries and Salo called for an ambulance. On October 4, 1931, Salo was on police duty at a local exhibition baseball game. During the seventh inning, a crowd of fans started to surge onto the playing field along the third base line. Salo tried to get them to move back. The left fielder retrieved a hard hit ball and threw it back towards first base on a perfect line but Salo was in its path and was hit in the back of the head near the right temple. He never saw it coming and fell to the ground unconscious for several minutes. He soon revived from first aid provided by players and spectators. He refused to go to the hospital and resumed his duties. After the game, as he was directing traffic, he was seen to begin to stagger. Two spectators dashed out to give him support and he collapsed in their arms. An ambulance was called, and he was rushed to the hospital where he was in critical condition. He never again gained consciousness, and at 9.40 p.m. he passed away with his family at his bedside. Grief-stricken Mrs. Solo was taken to her home after her husband had passed away, solaced by the presence of many kind friends. The news of Patrolman Solo's untimely end cast a pall of gloom over the entire city, for he was exceedingly well-liked and was perhaps Passaic's widest known citizen. Salo's body lay in state at his home, and hundreds of admirers of the great runner came there to pay him tribute. All day long, telegrams of condolences were received by Mrs. Salo, coming from all parts of the United States. One of the telegrams was from C.C. Pyle. He pledged that he would still meet his debt, now to Mrs. Solo. He never came through on that promise. Flowers came from Gavuzi and Newton. Solo's relay partner, Joey Ray, came in from Chicago to pay his respects. More than 100 World War I veterans came to Solo's home for a breast to pay their last respects to Solo. The next day, a military escort brought Salo's body to the funeral service at the First Presbyterian Church. Two hours before church services, the building was filled to capacity. So large was the throng that church officials had to notify the fire department to close the doors. Thousands unable to get within a block of the church stood outside with bared heads during the entire service. 
After the service, the police band played as the coffin was carried from the church and placed upon a military wagon. Mrs. Solo was overcome with grief and fainted. She was revived and escorted to a waiting automobile. Thousands lined the street for blocks. Several of his Bunyan Derby friends helped escort Solo's body to his last resting place at Cedar Lawn Cemetery. There was no sprint at the finish. All that was mortal of one of the world's greatest endurance runners was drawn along Lexington Avenue by six horses. The pace was slow. A firing squad of eight men fired three volleys as the silver casket carrying Solo's body dressed in his police uniform was lowered into the grave and an old army bugler played taps. Solo's running career and life were cut short. What would have happened if he had lived? Ultra running races dried up for all the pile runners during the Great Depression, and most of the American runners retired from the sport. Solo would have likely put it aside too, and would have continued to serve his community. With his passing, it was written, Passaic has never before seen such a funeral. It showed how the world, in a rather soft day, appreciates strength and endurance, understands dogged courage, and admires simplicity of soul. Peace be with Johnny Solo. With that, this is Davy Crockett, and this is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I hope you run fast and far, enjoy life, get outdoors, and most of all, stay safe and don't take unnecessary chances.